episode 84, Do Pharmacies with Stagnant Business Models Have Cause to Fear? Today, I speak with Troy Trigstad, VP of Pharmacy Programs at CCNC. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. CCNC stands for the Community Care of North Carolina. CCNC is a population health management not-for-profit with a very robust infrastructure, both technology and otherwise. And they use that infrastructure to support providers who are caring for patients in North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about CCNC in general, then I invite you to listen to episode 70, where I interview Annette Dubard. Today, however, I am focused on the work of Troy Trigstad, who is the VP of Pharmacy Programs at CCNC. He and his team created a program called the Pharmacy Home Project. Troy and his team's takeaway was that pharmacists would be a formidable collaborator if added to a patient's medical neighborhood. And by added to medical neighborhood, we're not talking about a drive-by MTM shooting. We mean the pharmacist as a true partner in the pursuits of global outcomes. Today, I speak with Troy Trigstad about the Pharmacy Home Project and the evolving pharmacy model. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Troy. Thanks for having me, Stacey. I am very much looking forward to getting into the Pharmacy Home Project, which is what you are working on primarily. But I am intrigued. You had sent me a deck earlier, and in it you made this statement. I am optimistic. This is you, by the way, writing. I am optimistic about the future of pharmacy, but I fear for those who are stagnant. Can you explain that a little bit? What do you mean by that? Well, it kind of goes to the value-driven nature of reimbursement within our new system of care. So everyone's seeking out value now. And I feel that community pharmacy in particular has this incredible firepower actually behind the counter to take care of people and monitor people and reinforce care plans. But it's been in a business model of being reimbursed based on selling a product. And in that conventional business model, the value that community pharmacy can bring really doesn't come out in that business model. It's sort of a round peg square hole. And for those that can provide that value and and evolve to a a state where they can express that value in terms that value purchasers seek, I think they'll thrive. And I believe that those that cannot will really wither on the vine. Do you think that that is something that is going to happen eminently Or one thing that I have heard is that it takes so long, the healthcare industry is making changes, is like turning an ocean liner. So in order for change to happen, maybe the inflection point isn't tomorrow, but in order to be ready for that inflection point when it comes, action needs to be taken immediately. Yeah, that's a great question and great point. In policy world out there, there's a little bit of a debate. You can think of practice transformation evolutions in two ways, how you go about stimulating them. Way number one is you pay people differently so that they behave differently so that you can measure differently. And sort of the second school of thought is that you measure people differently so that they behave differently and then you can pay them differently. And those two schools of thought really revolve around the same concept, which is how are you building in the incentives 
in order for transformation to occur. And I would argue that community pharmacy in particular has been in a circumstance with the entity that's financing them or where they're getting the remuneration for their service has been really focused on minimizing drug costs. And that's what their role has been in the system for years and years and years. And that there's this evolution going on outside of that pharmacy benefit management where alternative payment models are emerging and HCOs and shared savings models. Pharmacy is a little bit insulated from that. And so really kind of bridging that divide is probably the inflection point when you start to see a bridge from the pharmacy benefit and the medical benefit start to break down is when you're going to see that real turning of the ocean liner because you'll have both incentives happening simultaneously. I get reported on, I'm measured differently, which changes my behavior, but then I also get paid differently. And I'm really essentially getting paid for how is it that I can influence the medical side of the budget by keeping people more healthy by optimizing med use. True or false, Troy? Collaboration with community pharmacies is advantageous for any entity responsible for a panel of patients with a high level of medication use. Absolutely beneficial. So for me, I'm responsible for facilitating med optimization programs across our 1,800 plus primary care practices. And so that involves pharmacists and social workers and care managers, nurses, behavioral health coordinators, and so on and so forth. For us, we've spent the greater part of a decade and a half sort of rounding out this medical neighborhood team, so to speak, which is these wraparound supports to help these primary care providers do what they do even better. And that's sort of coordinate care for patients and bring value to the system through better health. And for a long, long time, we really didn't have a high level of interaction with community pharmacy. And somebody tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, I'd really like for you to consider weaving community pharmacy into this model. And we'd done this with long-term care, hospital pharmacy, pharmacists and clinics and pharmacies with these care managers. But community pharmacy was a little bit of an enigma to us. And so I went back to the office, had our team run some data for the complex patients, the patients that we really target the most for our work within the CCNC system, the Community Care of North Carolina system. And it turns out that for these patients, they go to their primary care provider three and a half times a year. And they go to the pharmacy 35 times a year. And so you can imagine in a population health model where frequent touches with patients and reinforcement of their care plans and determining whether or not there needs to be a change in in direction or if there needs to be another care team member that needs to be coordinated with, that those frequent touch points become so valuable for anybody that's responsible for a population for which they can't be in your office every day. Let's just define medical neighborhood. That's a term that you use, and and I can infer its meaning, but it might be nice to actually have a expert definition. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I couldn't say that there was an expert definition, but how it's evolving out there is, you know, so in primary care, the medical home concept has existed for nearly 50 years now. And the concept really was that you've got primary care and then you have patients that have these needs all around them. And you've probably had podcasts prior that discussed this, but the idea is that you've got primary care sort of quarterbacking and trying to coordinate care for these panels of patients. Well, what happened was as we started to get into more of the value-driven system, there was more and more recognition that you couldn't accomplish this just within the four walls of a primary care practice, that you really had to reach outside of that practice and have high levels of coordination with entities that are where people live, work, and play. Because you may be able to get to an office visit um, with relative frequency throughout the year, but the way patients are consumers and they need resources that are in their community that they frequent 
frequently. And so this notion of a medical neighborhood is I can have a medical home, but if I have all these supports around me, provider participants in the community that are coordinating with me, it really what we're talking about is it's a medical neighborhood. So another way to say it is it sort of it takes a village to take care of complex patients, right? How a pharmacist would then interact in a PCMH, you know, a patient-centered medical home kind of model is the PCMH might be that primary care physician in the middle, if we're talking about a primary care mm-hmm. patient-centered medical home. But around that primary care office, there would be other network of support, which would include the pharmacist that the primary care physician could work with in order to make sure that this web of support or the safety net existed. Exactly. And the easiest example to think about is adherence. You know, roughly a third of prescriptions that are written are never filled. And then about a third of prescriptions that are filled are never filled after the first fill. And so this concept of having others in the community that can help reinforce care or let you know when some gap needs to be filled is a really important concept. You know, so I think back in 2006, when we were toying around with the idea of what do we want to do around pharmacy or med optimization programs within CCNC, we sort of dreamed up this notion of a pharmacy home. So who and how are we coordinating medication use amongst patients, particularly complex patients? And really where we're at now is we're just marrying those concepts of a pharmacy home and a medical home into this medical neighborhood concept and then including other providers. Are you suggesting that there's two hubs in this PCMH, you know, or or medical home concept? You know, there's the medical hub, which would be the primary care practice. And then next to that medical hub would be the, the pharmacy hub, wherein you've basically got a pharmacist playing a role, which is, I mean, maybe they're not necessarily, or maybe they are, are they peer roles or does the pharmacist in some way, what does that interaction look like? Yeah, that's been our, probably our most interesting finding is that, so we actually started to build out a community pharmacy enhanced services network for pharmacies that were willing to do enhanced services and coordinate that with these primary care practices. And what we found was that most of the activities that they were engaged in when they were working with these primary care providers was really care management oriented. It was reinforcing care plans and drug list plans that those patients had over time and then letting the PCP know when that care plan was deviated by another provider or it was or the patient deviated from that plan. So what we discovered was a lot of care managers within CCNC that are out there in the interstitial space, if you will, between these practices working with a lot of these patients was that The pharmacies were doing a lot of the same types of activities that the care managers were doing, but they were focusing on the med use types of care management, and they were doing it within the pharmacy. So really for us, it was sort of community pharmacy care management, working with these care managers and the primary care practices. And they've really started to develop a really close working relationship because they're finding that it's so mutually beneficial to have each other to support. So when when the pharmacy identifies an issue with a patient, that they know who they're communicating within that uh, primary care practice, and they've got a protocol in place or a way of communicating efficiently and effectively in a really interpersonal, interprofessional way. And it's so critical, you know. So the the average chronically ill Medicare recipient with multiple chronic illnesses sees 13 different prescribers in one year, fills 50 unique medications, and is 100 times more likely to have a preventable hospitalization. The only lowest common denominator with respect to their med use is actually the pharmacy. It's peer-to-peer in some ways, but really what it's doing is it's think of that pharmacy, if you're a primary care provider, as that sentinel that's out there. 
and they're watching after this care plan that's ongoing with multiple medication often. And that patient's sort of traversing the healthcare system, but there is that hub of, of watching after that patient and then coordinating with primary care. That's what we're really working on a lot now. Is this what you basically just described? Is this, in essence, the pharmacy home project that you've been working on down there in North Carolina? Yeah, absolutely. And as I said earlier, we've implemented this in long-term care before. We've implemented this with hospital pharmacy at discharge, pharmacists and clinics, sort of every aspect of pharmacy except community pharmacy. And what we're finding with community pharmacy is there's such great potential there if you can change the incentive model and you can bring them into a workflow where they're really able to coordinate with other care team members. Heretofore, it's been a lot of fax tag on preauthorizations or clarification of, did you write this drug or that strength? And really what we're trying to evolve toward is what is a meaningful interprofessional relationship where there's value that the community pharmacy can provide to that practice to help them meet their metrics with care delivery. And as those models change on the medical benefit side toward how do we keep patients out of the hospital and healthy, how is it that community pharmacies can help them do that? And vice versa, what is that relationship with the primary care practice where they can help that pharmacy by enabling them with additional information and relationships and workflows so that they can best manage those patients over time? Let's take a look at this from the patient perspective, just to turn theory into something that is visualizable. Yep. Say I'm a patient, right? I'm on Medicaid because that sounds mostly about a bunch of comorbid conditions. I'm taking as many medications as you just said. I'm seeing my 13 different (laughs) providers over the course of the year. So how do I become part of this, the pharmacy home project that you're talking about? Is it I go to the pharmacy then? So I'm this patient. Yep. And I happen to show up at my local pharmacy with my prescription. I shove my prescription over the counter. And who says what to me? Someone realizes, like, I'm a patient that needs some help. Maybe I just stopped taking my medication. Like, how do I get absorbed into this process? Great question. It's one of the limitations that a lot of these pharmacies have right now is there's folks that really don't know these services exist. So an example service, an enhanced service in these community pharmacies is called med synchronization. So you can imagine these patients that see 13 different prescribers a year. They're not all prescribing the drug on the same day with the same refill patterns. So often what happens in this 35 times a year I go to the pharmacy experience is that all my meds, I might be filling two of my meds on the 10th of the month and six of my meds on the 20th of the month and three of my meds on the 27th of the month. Well, what med synchronization does is it actually brings all those together and says, look, we're going to meet with you one day a month and we're going to go through all of your meds. We're going to have a conversation about organizing everything. We're going to check in with you. And it's really the first time that a pharmacy is actually interacting with a patient at a patient level, right? We're not counseling you at a drug level. We're not counseling you only on one particular inhaler, which happens right now because you're buying one drug at a time, so to speak. We're actually saying, hey, you as an entire patient, we're going to sync your meds and we're going to work through your meds. And those services haven't been well marketed to patients. They're starting to be marketed to practices a little bit more. And I think it gives the opportunity for pharmacies to behave more like service providers rather than retail mercantile. I'm going to go through the narrative here. Once again, back to the story where you've got the patient walks into a pharmacy office. And I guess this patient is a Medicaid patient. So my name is on the list, right? So sitting there looking at the pharmacist over across the counter and she types my name into the computer, it pops up that I'm eligible for these services if the pharmacy that I happen to be in right now is part of the Pharmacy Home Project. And then it's at that point that the patient 
gets inducted, if that's the right word, into the pharmacy home project and is welcomed in with all of the opportunities. Is that how it happens? Yeah, both ways. So from the consumer side, if it's a pharmacy that offers one of these types of services, they'll say, hey, it looks like you take a lot of medications and it looks like they might be kind of disorganized. Would you like this service where we sync for you and you come here once a month and we meet together and go over your meds and and make sure everything's okay and that you're doing well. And they might say, sure, that sounds great. The other way it comes in is there might be a hospital under a value purchasing model or there might be a group practice ACO under a shared savings model that for their complex patients, they're looking for pharmacies out there that can provide these services because they've got complex patients for which they're responsible for and they want a better value through better health, right? And so it can come in both directions, both through a referral service or through consumers directly that are either offered that service or they start demanding that service. In the first example, where it's the patient who, by fortuitous coincidence, walked into a pharmacy that's offering these enhanced services, I'm assuming that it would be Medicaid that's footing the bill in that particular instance, where if it happened the other way, in other words, an ACO said, here's my list of patients, can you track them down and take care of them? Then obviously it would be the ACO that's footing the bill at that juncture. Right now, greater than 99% of the revenue coming into that pharmacy is based on the drugs that they sell. So the the appeal to a community pharmacy right now might be, well, I'm getting more patients with more drugs so I can sell more drugs, and I'm providing this really good service so that I can get the referral. Eventually, over time, there has to be a transition in the model where it's a blended model between, yeah, look, I'm selling drugs, but I'm also selling services. I'm actually being remunerated for those services that I'm providing because Otherwise, you end up with some disconnects and disconnected incentives. So the funding for these, it might come from the payer in the form of, hey, I've got complex patients that have these needs, and I know that I can reduce utilization by offering these services or paying for these services. It can also come in the form of referral patterns. I mean, the the interesting thing to me is mostly what needs to happen is changing consumer expectations and changing medical care provider expectations of what pharmacy should be doing out there. That's the biggest barrier to this happening right now. Most consumers don't have the expectation that they would receive these types of services. Most providers out there that are in alternative payment models don't realize that they could start to influence pharmacy practice by starting to demand these services and partnership. And so for years and years and years, I think that if you need a hip surgery, you go to a primary care provider and they say, gee, Liz, it looks like you need hip surgery. What happens? They make a referral, right? Because they say, look, we work with or we think highly of. Most of the time for the long arc of pharmacy, it's, hey, what pharmacy would you like to go to? And the inference is they're all the same. Just pick one that's fast, cheap, and easy for you. To me, the evolution occurs when you've got somebody on the medical care team saying, hey, I've got a patient here that needs some of these enhanced services, and there's pharmacies out there that provide these services, and we've got a relationship with those pharmacies in such a manner where it's better for the patient, it's better for the pharmacy business model, and it's better for me and my medical business model because we're in an outcomes marketplace now. How would a pharmacy need to alter its kind of fundamental business practices in order to become viable in that new continuum. For example, in order for a physician to 
say, the pharmacy I really would love to see you go to is X pharmacy. Don't just go to the local whatever because it happens to be two blocks from your house. I need you to drive a little bit further and go to this other one. In order for that to happen, the providers need to be very well apprised of the pharmacist's capabilities. Therefore, I see marketing flashing before my eyes. <laughs> you're exactly, you're exactly, you, you hit the nail on the head. So that's why we put together this community pharmacy enhanced services network. So the idea here is we need to, with our system of care, remember, I'm not on the pharmacy side, actually. I'm on the, how do we support primary care side? And the idea is we need to identify and market to our providers, those pharmacies that provide these additional services so they can establish relationships with them. You said it exactly. So we do things like collaboration cards. Here are the pharmacies that provide these types of services for patients that might that you think might need additional services. There's actually a, an online locator app that we're just about to launch so that I can quickly identify whether I'm a consumer or I'm a provider for patients that need uh, these extra services. And, and I think what we're going to see in, in community pharmacy, which will be profound over the next five or 10 years as the system moves toward value-based reimbursement, is really a bifurcation in the marketplace. There are a number of patients out there that can pick up their oral contraceptives, for instance, in the mail. And they're otherwise uncomplicated, and they might have questions that they ask providers from time to time, but they're not at high risk, and they don't need a high level of coordination. And then there's a set of patients out there that does need a high level of coordination. I'll give you, for instance, so in, in my world, 90% of the top 10% most expensive patients have persistent mental illness. They really need these types of services to get healthy and to thrive. And so we've not had really a marketplace in the community pharmacy side. All reimbursement on drugs is sort of equal. And what I mean by that is that I've got a sort of a fee schedule for these drugs, and it really doesn't matter what the patient's complexity of their condition is or what kind of services they need. I get the same amount of reimbursement as a pharmacy. patient with one condition, I get paid the same versus a patient with three conditions or four conditions or somebody that's struggling or just got discharged from the hospital, the payment's the same because you've got a product-based reimbursement schedule. And so those are kind of the fundamental stuck-in-the-mud types of mechanics that are a vestige of a system of what you described on the medical side, which was fee-for-service. And fee-for-service and fee-for-product have, have flourished for a good amount of time now. They just don't fit really well those systems of care with value or incentivizing value. It sounds to me like this is a either an enhanced version of MTM, you know, medication therapy management that was all the talk maybe five years ago, or is this something fundamentally different? Well, when I talk about that bifurcation in the marketplace, rather than saying we're going to spread peanut butter thin and everybody needs some kind of service, there's this OBRA 90 requirement in pharmacy that requires everybody that gets a med to receive counseling. And it's this idea that everybody needs something. And that may be true. But the fact of the matter is that the folks that are more complex need something that's much more additional and much more coordinated than the folks that aren't as complex. I think that the feature of what we're describing in these enhanced services is that they require a real investment in changing how a pharmacy does their workflow. Just like with primary care, the transformation to a patient-centered medical home, they were in an encounter-based environment too. So I'm a care physician. I show up. I might have 20 to 30 patients on my docket, and I need to get through those patients throughout the day. That workflow is very transaction-oriented or encounter-based oriented. And the transformations that are taking place are, hey, wait a second, there's patients that should be here that aren't, and there's patients with gaps. And 
we need to figure out how to take care of them when they're not in my office. It's the same concept in pharmacy, which is I need to do something with patients that's a little bit more than filling those medications. I need to stop my existing workflow, which is how most efficiently I can get the right drug and the right bottle for the right patient and actually step back from that workflow and say, hey, there's a healthcare delivery issue here that that I need to stop and address right now. And it's those workflow considerations that are the hardest part. It's been the case on primary care side. It'll be the case on the community pharmacy side as well. Yeah, I've heard it said you don't want to pave a cow path, you know, like <laughs> exactly <laughs> the whole idea that trying to tweak a bad process or something that's fundamentally flawed is oftentimes all it does is lengthen the amount of time to correction, you know, to, exactly. to true correction. So to come back full circle, your question, what's different about this is there's pharmacies that have the business model of we are invested in some additional people resources around clinical programs. We're invested in changing our workflow. And it may cost me a little bit more to put those pills in that bottle and procure the drugs and as a pharmacy business. So I need to be a pharmacy and service provider. Then there's the sort of really operationally efficient, more sort of business plan where I'm really still more selling drugs. And so it, it, this bifurcation in the marketplace that I certainly believe will happen in five years it, it is a fundamental difference from some of the existing programs out there, which is we want all pharmacies to do all things. And I don't know that that serves the marketplace well. And for value-driven systems, they need two different things from two different business models. That could actually be reminiscent of the difference between a wholesale pharmacist that serves LTC, long-term care, and a retail pharmacist that has traditionally been all things to all people within a community. And I know you did a lot of work with long-term care, but maybe you're sort of seeing, you know, similarly to the way that the, the wholesale pharmacies have cropped up, maybe we'll see two different kinds of community pharmacies. I think we'll see multiple, multiple different types of community pharmacies. That's kind of the idea, actually which is there's particular services to meet the needs of particular stratas in the population. Long-term care is a fascinating example right now because they are about to become part of a circumstance, in, at least in rehab centers and other types of assisted living types of circumstances, where they might be subject to the downstream effects of bundled payment. And in a bundled payment circumstance, if you're a, the entity that is responsible for the surgery or the subject of the bundled payment, you're going to be looking for ensuring that downstream, when they're no longer in your ambulatory surgical center or wherever it is that you are doing that surgery, that they're taken care of over time. And a lot of those patients end up in sort of rehab circumstances or they end up in, in long-term care types of circumstances. And so that may actually be one of the first places that we start to see hey, I know that you guys are giving us the best price on drugs, or you're giving us the best, most accurate and safe distribution of drugs. But we have this new need, and this new need is we need you to sort of figure out some of the mess that's going on with these patients' medications because now we're really highly at risk for that patient bouncing back to us in the hospital or needing additional specialist services down the road. So it's my belief that all of these changes that are happening on the non-drug side are eventually going to flow over into the community pharmacy side. The question is going to be who can adapt to that change or that bleeding over from the medical benefit side to the pharmacy side quicker. Maybe it's a little Darwinian. Back to the very, very top of this conversation when you said kind of adapt or stagnate and you fear exactly. for those who stagnate. Let me just change the gear really quickly for my grand finale question, because 
In North Carolina, where you are, CCNC has obviously very robust data capabilities and you're very embedded within the health information architecture of the state and offer a lot of really interesting opportunities for people within North Carolina. Other states may not have such a resource, but many states do have health information exchanges. Could you just explain how a health information exchange might help a pharmacy adapt and begin to alter in the ways that you're suggesting? I think it's the single most important aspect, actually, of readiness once those incentives are in place. So there has to be the measurement and the payment incentive, but but once that's in place, the actual operational efficiency that has to become reality is exchange. Now, the, the interesting history of pharmacy is that pharmacy's actually always been on the forefront of exchange. If you go back into the 80s, you know, pharmacy is one of the very, very few, historically very, very few environments where all of the insurance and everything is essentially tidied up before you ever pick up the medication or receive the service. That really doesn't happen a lot in healthcare. And the reason for that is because there was some interoperability requirements that were built into the system through the National Council of Prescription Drug Plans, NCPDP, where all pharmacies had to connect basically in real time for everything that they needed to transact and interact with drugs and even with clinical sort of orientations with drug utilization reviews. So, hey, we've got two drugs here that may be interacting, et cetera, et cetera. So all the way going back into the 80s, that system of interoperabilities existed. And even if you fast forward, the system of interoperability with respect to electronically prescribing medications now exists. So the nation's essentially biggest, most effective interoperable HIE right now is an electronic prescribing system. And so I don't know if you've gone to the your, your uh, prescriber recently, or your physician recently, but most prescriptions now that are transmitted, they'll be entering it into the electronic medical record and it goes to the pharmacy. So those systems exist. The problem is that the incentives haven't existed to transmit clinical information and care plans. So we haven't built the systems in such a way for which they can share things like lab data or disposition at discharge or ICD-9 codes or the types of things that you would need to be able to have within the pharmacy in order to provide clinical services or to provide a level of coordination with other providers. And there's a huge demand out there for this in those pharmacies that provide these enhanced services. Probably one of the more popular things that's happening with the 244 pharmacies we interact with a lot now is that the medical providers will give access to their medical record to a number of these community pharmacies so that they can much, much more efficiently interact with each other. And and we're seeing that become quite popular. So I know there's a demand for this sort of how is it that we can work with each other in our systems, but it's not related to drug reimbursement. And it's not necessarily related to accurate order fulfillment, right? And so those systems have been built for payment. They've been built for how do I get a prescription accurately to you so that you can fill it. But the incentives really haven't been in place quite yet to build out the clinical interoperability. I think that's certainly the next wave. I thank you so much for being on the program today, Troy. Oh, I enjoyed it. I listened to your podcast as much as I can. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of All of the shows that we have published thus far, there are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives 
in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.